Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 295 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, joined by Jill. How's it going? It's Christmas Eve. Oh, my God, it is Christmas Eve. You're right. We're recording this not on Christmas Eve because as much as we love our jobs, we're not monsters. <laughs> we are enjoying Christmas Eve with our respective families and relaxing. Um, I hope maybe lots of people are traveling today and they're listening to us. There's like no rhyme or reason. Some holidays we have really big numbers and other holidays I assume no one in the world is listening to us ever again. Yeah. Um, This is Christmas Eve and today's episode is an interview we did with Delia Owens and she was, she has lived a life. I know. She has lived an absolutely crazy life. She spent a lot of time here in the United States growing up in the South, but then she spent even more time in Africa. Like out in the wilderness of Africa, isolated, except for animals. Yeah, studying animals and the way that they interact with each other. And then she came back, and now she's a writer. And she's she was writing nonfiction before. She was a nonfiction bestseller previously. And now she's a New York Times bestseller for her fiction work. Um, Where the Crawdad Sings is the name of the book. And it's... Oh, she was just great. I loved her so much. She was a blast to chat with. Um, before we let you get into that, though, do you want to remind people about our 2019 reading challenge that we just announced? Sure. So we decided to do a 2019 reading challenge. Um, and, you know, all these other places do it. Why shouldn't we do one? Exactly. So we have... Um, find it on social and our website and all sorts of fun places um it's 12 books that um we encourage you to read that will sort of hopefully have you reading outside your reading comfort zone mm-hmm. book challenges i should say it's 12 books we didn't pick 12 books for you to read correct we gave you 12 challenges for you to go and find books yes that did i not explain that well Wait, no, you said we it's 12 books for you to read i was just making oh, sure people i see what you're saying the main yes. that i've listened to the previous episode um yeah, if you want more information about it, you can, like Jill said, go to our website or you can uh, follow along on our social media at ProBookNerds on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can also email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com if you want some book recommendations. I'm sure throughout the year, much like in the past where we've done Book Riot book recommendations, uh, it would only make sense to do recommendations for our own uh, reading challenge, especially because that way, Jill and I don't have to think of episodes on the fly, which we often do. Um, do you think that there's other things people should know about? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Uh, I hope 
If you are one who celebrates Christmas, you have a lovely Christmas. If you don't, I hope you have a wonderful whatever you celebrate and all things in life. And happy early New Year, but you'll hear from us before the end of the year. Because even though the office is closed, Jill and I are still giving you those Monday and Thursday episodes every single week. Because we're dedicated and great. Okay. All right. I'm rambling now. Hope you guys enjoy this interview with Delia Owens on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Adam and Jill, and we are incredibly excited today to be joined by Delia Owens, author of the number one best-selling Where the Crawdads Sing which has spent several months on the New York Times bestsellers list in both the book and audiobook formats. Delia's debut novel was also selected by Reese Witherspoon for her book club, and it's been on countless best of lists, and the book is amazing. Delia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Adam and Jill, for having me. I appreciate it. Can you kick us off by um, giving our listeners a brief introduction to Where the Crawdads Sing? Oh, yes, sure. This is a story of a young girl who is abandoned at a young age. Uh, She was brought up in the wild coastal marsh of North Carolina, and she was very tough and skilled because she'd been raised in the marsh, but she's abandoned at the age of of 10, but she, in, in that environment, she's able to cope because she can knows how to fish. She has a shack to live in. I wanted the story to be very realistic. It's not fanciful. This was a situation where a young girl could survive, but she was on her own, and she was uh, discriminated against by the local people in the little nearby fishing village because she was different. She wore rags, and they didn't help her. They discriminated against her. They um, uh, rejected her. The story is about abandonment, it's about isolation, and how that can affect a person, and how she copes with it. And when I, as soon as I put Kaya, her name, the heroine's name is Kaya, as soon as I put her on paper, she took off on her own, because she, in ways that were surprising even to me, she uh, had such um, uh, grit and survival abilities, and it's her story of how isolation affects her and how she copes in her life. So I I don't want to say that the way that she's treated is, you know, autobiographical for you, but certainly when people read this book, they're going to see how you write about nature and this young woman's relationship with nature. And I feel like that is a part of, you know, your, your backstory and your life where that's something that only someone who spent so much time in nature could could share the way that you do. So kind of that part of her life where you really dive into her connection with the world around her, that's very much a part of your own upbringing, correct? Yes. I was um, I was raised in South Georgia, and my mother from a very young age would uh, encourage me to go way out into the woods as far as I could go. She's the one who would say to me, go way out yonder where the crawdads sing, because she wanted me to experience nature and watch wild animals. And um, I, I don't think she realized how seriously I'd take her advice because from there I left and <laughs> spent 23 years in some of the most remote areas of Africa studying wildlife. 
And uh, yes, that is the the foundation and the entire framework of the story is because the the marsh in this book is actually almost like a character itself. It's not just a backdrop. And um, the the point is that Kaya struggling to survive learns from nature much more than most of us ever learn from nature why we behave as we do, why people discriminate, why people um, behave badly sometimes. A lot of it has a genetic basis, and, and all of that is part of nature, and, and she learns that, and it, it helps her survive. You've researched and written about female grouping in mammals while spending years studying uh, wild animals in Africa. How did any of that information and research play into the characters you've developed for Where the Crawdads Sing? It was a huge part of the character development and um, the story itself. I studied um, Kalahari lions in the Kalahari Desert of Botswana and brown hyenas there and elephants in the Luwango Valley. And one of the things that fascinated me most about my studies in Africa was to observe firsthand how those mammals that live in tightly bonded groups, like the pride of lions and the baboons um, in a troop, those groups are not made up of both sexes. They're made up only of females. The males come and go from each pride and each troop for mating, but they do not live in the groups. The females stay in their groups for life. And we are primates, of course, and on Earth, all primates except for two live in strongly bonded female groups. So we have a very strong genetic propensity to belong to a group. And um, and that doesn't happen for years and years during our past, we lived in strong groups. But now, I come back from Africa in a remote area, and I visit my friends in the cities with a million people, and they felt just as isolated as I did. Uh, but we still, now in today's society, uh, don't have the, the. We don't as often live in those strong female groups, and so there's a lot of. I think this affects our our behavior a lot. Okay, I kind of have a two-part question, and I'm sorry in <laughs> advance because I'm sure they both require long answers. But first, I, you know, you, you talk about how you, you, you grew up and you, you were very much a part of, you know, being in the wilderness and you, your mom told you to go, you know, explore and, and do as much as you possibly can. But that is a world of difference between spending a lot of time in, like, the trails and things of, of the United States and going to Africa. So first part of this question, how did you go from being over here in the United States to traveling and studying for so long, on, so long in Africa? And then just the second half, when you came back, like what did your adjustment feel like? <laughs> um, wow. Okay. Well, first of all, <laughs> yes. It, well, <laughs> um, I think spending my childhood and my young adulthood out in the woods of Georgia did prepare me um, I wasn't afraid of wildlife. I wasn't afraid of snakes. I knew how to pick up snakes. Um, I knew how to pick up poisonous snakes. I, 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 that was my, my youth. So, And then when I was at university, I, I started studying zoology, and that's when Jane Goodall ca- came out with her first book. Mm. And that's what was 
the, the, the driving force. I thought, oh my gosh, if she can go and study chimpanzees in Tanzania, I can too. <laughs> and I became determined to do that, and I did. And so um, I met Mark Owens. He co-authored the, my three non, our three nonfiction books, and and we were married and went off and, and uh, stayed 23 years. So I think my, my youth prepared me for that. And, you know, it was... I don't know why I never looked at it as a huge uh, thing to do. It was just seemed like quite natural thing to go, well, instead of walking in the woods of South Georgia, I want to go uh, roam around the Kalahari Desert, see what's there. <laughs> I wasn't not intimidated by it. Uh, it just was a, seemed like a great adventure, and, and I loved it, every minute of it. It was hard, but I loved it. And then... The second part of your question of how did I, it was it was more difficult, frankly, coming back this way. Mm-hmm. I would say that coming back and trying to live here uh, was much more difficult for me than going and living in the wilderness. Um, when I came back here, I sort of was expecting that, oh, okay, now there, I'm going to have a social group, now I'm going to have friends, and and yet I was had become like Kaya. I, I was shy. I, di- I didn't reach out for people. I wanted friends, but I had forgotten sort of how to reach out. So I, I, I'd say I've been more isolated here in northern Idaho than I was in Africa. It's, hmm. uh, it, was, it, it was very different. And that was another thing that made me want to write this book is to show how isolation can change you. You get to the point that you don't reach out like you should. That's really interesting. That is interesting. I, and I definitely understand what you're saying because, like you said, it's it's a different type of isolation where you've spent so much time you know, amongst these, these animals and wilderness and very kind of, despite the fact that you're alone, it's a much, it's a very free, open space. And, and then you come back here and it's just a world of difference where people, I don't want to say they don't care about important things, but they have different things that they care about as opposed to the nature around them. I yeah, that makes honestly that makes a lot of sense that it would feel more isolating here to try and readjust to what people more or less, you know, might care about when it's things that you know, you've seen a different side of the world that those types of things might not be at the front of your mind. Absolutely. And and, and you and found that people here couldn't relate. You know, they couldn't mm. really understand what where i'd lived and what i'd been through and and i don't take me wrong i did make good friends here but i i never felt i don't know if i ever felt lonely in africa i realized that i was isolated and missed my friends but alone i didn't really feel lonely where here i do um but it's it's um and we need you know and we need groups for a lot of different reasons we need the support of a group and um i think that's that was one of the main driving forces for uh, my novel is to show how uh, human behavior is changed and affected when they when they don't have a group. Actually, um, wanted to ask sort of a question related to the groups. Your book is um, dedicated to three friends of yours that you've had since childhood, correct? <laughs> yeah. And then you um, you know you studied female groupings in your research, what is it about female groupings like that that you find so interesting that you wanted to dedicate your research to that? 
it's everything really when you think of the survival of um, animals in the wild. I mean, the female group is, is predominantly about survival. And it, there is a lot of camaraderie, but that's not the reason it evolved. And it, because there's just as much competition within the group as there is um, camaraderie. And, but a fem- if, take, for example, lions in the Kalahari Desert where it's very hot and dry. It'd be very difficult for a female to raise cubs on her own. A single mom would have a difficult time in the Kalahari because, the, the, because of the lack of water, the, the prey species are widely scattered. So she has to leave her cubs, and so they leave their cubs in a group while they go out and hunt. The females have a better chance of uh, bringing down a larger prey animal together and so they have food for themselves and for their offspring. So it's all about survival. And um, that fascinated me because that, whereas we don't necessarily need a group for survival anymore, still it, it is important for our, if, when mothers get together with their young in a, in a human situation, the, the young children have each other to play with so we know how important social behavior is among young people and the mothers form bonds so they're willing to help each other out in certain situations all of that is genetically um based and it's it just shows how important it is even though we can survive now on our own the children have a better chance of being socially um uh, fit and able to go to school and learn and everything better if they have groups, if they form other groups before they go to school. All of that is based on genes. That's really interesting. Um, you, to kind of bounce around a little bit, you were you know, mentioning before about the you know, isolation you, you felt when you, when you came back. And I, you know, after so many years of, of writing you know, scientific nonfiction and, you know, to the point of having three international best-selling novels, was that, or not novels rather, but international works, was that isolation, was that the driving force for you to decide to want to write Kaya's story as fiction for your, for your debut novel? Or was this a story that was ruminating, you know, long before you came back? Oh, I was thinking about it long before I came back, but I didn't. I couldn't. Ser- I didn't seriously have the time or anything to do it until I came back. And yes, that was the uh, that was the driving force. Not just isolation, but I wanted to. I wanted to tell a story that would show how isolation affects uh, a person, but also other things. How other behavior patterns um, are were born literally in the wild, and how they still are with us. And I wanted to tell that story. And that's the reason I went into so, I mean, you know, I mean, the, it's a murder mystery. It's a love story. The murder uh, mystery is also very much, uh, the murder story, I should say, is very much based on behavior, hum, human behavior that may be considered wrong but is actually natural. And um, the, the love story is based on behavior that's very, very natural. And all of those things are behavior patterns that we exhibit that we've exhibited for millions and millions of years and they're all based on on our past and we can see 
the value of, of a lot of the behavior patterns. We can see the fault in some of them. We look at behavior today from a different perspective. We look at it from um, being right or wrong. And as I write in the book, biology doesn't see behavior as right or wrong. Um, it sees it as, as, as what ends up in survival. And, um, and that is what's in us. And I, and I think that people are fascinated with that. And so I put a lot of, it wasn't just abandonment, I put, a, put that into a lot of aspects of the story. Were there challenges that you found in writing a work of fiction after writing nonfiction for so long? No, I found it so much easier than writing nonfiction, <laughs> really. <laughs> I really did. I mean, it's fun. You can say whatever you want. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean the science part of it is based on, on, on truth, but the story can, you know, you can make a character whatever you want. I mean, in, in nonfiction, the, you know, <laughs> the character's got to be real, and the timelines have to fit, and the date, you know, so many times you think, oh, my God, the story would be so much better if the fire could burn camp down before we went. Someone's like, nope, nope, has to be true. Um, so, but with fiction, you could just change it however, whatever supports the story the best is what you can choose to write. So I loved it. <laughs> I had fun with it. I, had, I, I, I found that my imagination just grew in leaps and bounds when I could write what I wanted to. And I really did feel like the characters were growing on their own and, and the, you know, I just, in the story, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with ideas of, oh, I can do this and I can do that. And if it doesn't work, you just delete it. <laughs> there was a, there were a lot of deletions. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, well, actually, I saw that you you did an, an interview with someone. You talked about how this because the book has two timelines, and I saw. I think you said that one of the situ, one of the unique differences was when you change something in one timeline. You had to when you were going back in the editing process. I imagine that was one thing it took some getting used to, is having multiple timelines and being able to create your own story in those timelines, but making sure they align. That part was difficult. <laughs> I admit it. Um, that part was difficult. Actually, I wrote the book the first time. The first draft was all chronological. So that made it easier because I just wrote it out chronologically. And then I realized that when I wrote it that way, you know, the first almost the first half of the book was a little girl growing up in the bush. And I thought, oh, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't going to like that. They're not going to stick with 100 pages of, 150 pages of little girl in the, in the uh, marsh. So that's the reason I, I did the two different time, I did the time shifts and had the mystery part, um, you know, in alternate chapters. So it's sort of the bomb under the sofa sort of thing, the, you know, the, foreshadowing that okay there's going to be another whole part of the story and uh so that that was easy the first time i went and and mixed the two chapters but then anytime i had to edit something you know oh my gosh then it was a nightmare <laughs> because if i decided to move this chapter over here and this one back there then well how many you know it was it was it, it, then i had to make sure that every single thing in, in those chapters then lined up because they were in a different place now it was, uh, and by this time, it took me so long to re write it that by this time I was an old person <laughs> and 
I had to take I had to take endless notes on everything to keep them straight. But that's funny. There's probably still some mistakes in there somewhere, but no one's mentioned them. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I love her. So after this experience, do you see yourself writing more fiction? Oh, yes. I really wish to write fiction for a long time to come. I I love it. And um, it's frustrating. There's nothing easy about it. I mean, you know, it's just um, like playing tennis, you know. When you hit the ball perfectly one time, it just feels great. But how often does that happen? And, uh, you know, not often for me. I mean, it just—I love it when the right words come, but it's—it's it's not easy. Uh, and uh, but I do—I just absolutely love it as much as anything in in the world. I love writing, and so I want to keep doing it because I can't imagine not writing. So when you have time to read, what types of books do you read? Do you find yourself reading more fiction or is it more kind of the nonfiction, you know, research type of, of things that you've written in the past? Uh, I write, I'm, I'm sorry, I read probably as much nonfiction as, um, as fiction. Um, and you, you know, I love fiction. I do. Um, I'm, I um, and I've, I've just finished. I've read. You know, all, I'm trying. I'm trying to catch up on the, all the ones that are out now, mm-hmm. like they're there and mm-hmm. and um, reading um, a gentleman in Moscow. The moment mm-hmm. I'm behind. Obviously, I'm way behind <laughs> because I got really. I got really far behind on my um, on my um, when I was editing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like reading when I when I'm writing because it's inspiring to me but when I was editing it it was it was hard to um but I do read I have my twin brother and I have a sort of hobby of of physics my degrees in are in zoology but we have sort of a a hobby of physics so we read um physics books and go back and forth on that not that I'm it's taken me uh you know 20 years to sort of get a loose grip on general relativity but that's i do a lot of reading in that i love this idea of like a little physics book club between (laughs) you and your brother (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, we have our own little book club (laughs) it's fun it's fun he's way he's a lot better than i am he's always having to explain things to me but that's fine it's fun it's a great connection oh man (laughs) all right well i know you're you're very very busy and you have a tight schedule but i just have one more question for you what do you hope readers take away from reading your book oh boy I should have been prepared for that one that's a great question (laughs) well I would like for readers to see and feel I want them to feel I want them to feel how important it is to understand our past behaviors because and to understand nature because both of those things can help us understand why we behave the way we do that is perfect i guess that i know you're very very busy so we really appreciate the time delia thank you so much for joining us today thank you adam and jill thank you for having me i really appreciate your interest i, I don't take it for granted at all i appreciate it a lot thank you. 
Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So, come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app!